Our scripture that can be found in the inside of the bulletin, Luke 18, 9 through 14. Luke 18, 9 through 14. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Some people have asked me, where do I get my inspiration? Uh, You know, we all have heroes. Uh, If, uh, you know, you're a particular, if you're a young person, or maybe you're in your particular field or industry, well, my industry is that of a pastor. So where do I get inspiration uh, when I need direction and guidance? And so I'm going to reveal to you my uh, inspiration. Uh, it's, it's Mr. Collins from Pride and Prejudice. Mr. Collins, if you remember, he's the, uh, you know, in this particular uh, parish at Rosings Park. And, uh, you know, the way he conducts himself, uh, you know, the austerity and, and his sermons, they're exciting and and uh, so when things get difficult, I simply, you know, ask, what would Mr. Collins do? I have one of those bracelets. It's in black and white, of course. Um, I'm even so impressed with the way he handles women. Uh, here he is with Miss Bennett, you know. And so when I need a romantic spark in terms of how to woo my wife, uh, it's Mr. Collins for me. Thank you very much. No, no, that's obviously a joke. Mr. Collins is an idiot. He's a bumbling fool. Uh, portrayed on uh, the big screen for, uh, the, you know, the laugh for, of everyone. He's the butt of the joke. Uh, and uh, you don't have to look far in the media before you find a Christian uh, here or there that you can go ahead and throw a stone at. And I sometimes cringe. I was, uh, there was an episode of The Office that I came across. And if you'll remember, the, the head of accounting, uh, Angela Martin, who is a born-again Christian. In fact, you know, they do these little clips where she, you know, if she was going to be stranded on a desert island, what, what book would she take? And uh, she said the Bible and the purpose-driven life, and of course the Da Vinci Code, so she could burn it while she was there. Uh, Angela looks down with disdain upon all the other people in the office. Uh, she is exactly the sort of person that you wouldn't want to hang out with, uh, and yet professes to be a born-again Christian. Um, uh, the media certainly has a field day uh, portraying people like that. But I wonder if there can sometimes be some truth to the matter. Uh, I don't know if you know some people who are Christians, uh, but they're exactly the sort of people that you wouldn't want to hang out with at all. Uh, There's a holier-than-thou that sort of goes along with them. Now, to be sure, Jesus, uh, people can claim to be anything they want to be. Uh, But I'm so appreciative of this passage because it helps us to understand what Jesus thinks about people 
like this. What Jesus calls us to be if we are followers of Jesus Christ. What is the heart that we are supposed to have toward other people? And one thing is very clear. That whatever is going on in our heart will ultimately be manifest in what is going on with our hands and with our eyes as we relate to other people. Notice verse 9. He told this parable to some who trusted in others that they were righteous and therefore treated others with contempt. I want to take this opportunity to let this passage read us by forcing us to examine how we treat others because that provides a window into our heart of how we relate to God. Those who have been transformed by God's grace cannot help but exhibit grace in the way that they um, uh, in the way that they deal with other people. So we're going to have two different character analyses that we look at here. Analyses, analyses, I don't know. What would Mr. Collins do? I need him right now. We're going to look at the Pharisee. And then we're going to look at the tax collector. And then we're going to look at the results of God and his judgment upon these two people. The first point I want to make of that of the Pharisee is this, that acting right doesn't make you righteous. Verse 9, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. If you remember last week, uh, I talked about the unjust judge and the widow. He was showcasing these two different people. Well, now he's talking. And notice it says he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. In other words, he's speaking to a specific audience. There's a crowd that's gathered around and he's speaking to them. It doesn't say that he told this to the Pharisees. It's simply that he told them to this particular group of people who trusted that they were righteous. The truth is you don't have to necessarily be religious to believe this about yourself. That you're a Pharisee. I know plenty of non-religious people that would fall into this category. That I have enough goodness in myself that I can be considered righteous. So they have a high view on themselves and the result, of course, is that they look down on others. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now I don't think there could be a bigger spread in the Bible than these two particular characters. We have the Pharisee. The word Pharisee literally means set apart, those who set themselves apart. They were the uber-religious class. The ones who wanted to stand out even among uh, the people who followed the law. They wanted to be so over the top that they were in a class by themselves in terms of their righteousness. They, he went up to the temple to pray. We get that. But the other was a tax collector. This is the sort of person you don't normally see go up to the temple to pray. Because he worked for the Romans. His job was to collect the taxes. And by and large, these people also skimmed off the top. They were universally hated by their people. And uh, they were considered outcasts. But this tax collector goes up. These two different characters, they go up to the temple to pray. Now, why would they be going? It seems that they're going at the same time. The temple, every day, there would be two specific worship services in the temple. By the way, when we make a distinction between praying and worship, but in the Hebrew context, 
going up to the temple to pray also means to worship. They're going to a worship service. At dawn and at three o'clock, there would be the daily atonement offering where a lamb would be offered, would be slaughtered and the, and the uh, blood would be put upon the altar and then the priest would go ahead and go into the sanctuary to offer incense. Remember the story of Zechariah and the people would pray afterwards. It appears they're going to one of these particular services, either the one at six o'clock in the morning or the one at three o'clock. The lamb would be offered, the trumpets would sound, the cymbals would clang, and a psalm would be sung, and then the priest would offer, would go in, and the people would pray. So during this particular time of praying, we see the Pharisee utter a prayer. By the way, many people prayed out loud. And so it's quite, uh, it's quite possible that this Pharisee is actually praying and he's speaking out loud. Notice the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now the Pharisee, so he's saying this, praying, probably being overheard, right? I'm not like these other people especially even like this tax collector. He's standing by himself. Now most likely there were other Pharisees at the service and we know that birds of a feather flock together, right? The Pharisees would be in their particular group. The other people would be in their particular group. Well, this Pharisee's standing apart. He's set apart from the set apart. He doesn't want to be polluted by anyone. So there are two categories in this Pharisee's prayer. There's I and there's other men. There's me and everyone else. The extortioners, the unjust, the adulterers, even this guy. He's in a class by himself. I fast twice a week. He gives the evidence of why he is deserving to be in a class by himself. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's listing his credibility. Now in the law of Moses, a fast was only required once, one day a week, excuse me, one day a year on the Day of Atonement. The Pharisees actually fasted uh, during all three ceremonies, one day on all three major festivals, and they put a fence around the law, meaning just in case they made a mistake, they fasted on the two days before and the two days afterward. So if you add it all up, it would be 15 days a year that the Pharisees fasted. Well, this guy puts a fence around the fence. He fasts two days a week. Unheard of. He would have been seen as a very, very pious and holy man. And indeed, he gives tithes on all that he gets. Once again, they had come up with rules of how you were to give and so forth, and there was no requirement to tithe on everything. There were certain uh, certain herbs, certain other things you didn't have to tithe on. But no, not this man. He wanted to make sure. And so he tithed on everything. An impressive resume. But all was not well with this man. For the scripture says that he went home unjustified or not justified. What's going on? In fact, when you look at this Pharisee's prayer, you discover that it's not really a prayer. See, the reason you pray, really three particular reasons one would pray back then for confession, 
for thanks and worship or for petitions for yourself and others. And so this man starts his prayer. It starts off sort of as a thanksgiving psalm. I thank you, God. But it never gets around to the source of the blessing. I thank you, God, that I'm like this. But it never gets around to, and the reason that I'm like this is because of you. In fact, if you look at his small passage, he uses the word I five times, and he only uses the word you, as in God, one time. See, instead of acknowledging God in his prayer, what he is saying is, God, acknowledge me. He's doing all the right things, but for all the wrong reasons. This man is showing us that ritual does not equal righteousness. Religious behavior does not equal righteousness. These tithes were being given to the temple. Good was being done with them. There was good things going on with that. But it didn't equal righteousness. So we have to understand, my friends, what righteousness really is. In our culture, that's influenced Greco-Roman culture, we look at righteousness as living a morally upright life. Following a moral code, doing the right thing, so to speak. But in our code of righteousness, God is not necessary, is he? That's not what righteousness meant to the, uh, to the Israelites. Righteousness was God's sovereign bestowal of his favor and his blessing. Righteousness was God's saving acts in history. The best example of this would, of course, be the Israelites, right? God said to them, God said to them, I did not choose you because you were uh, better than all the other people, because you, that you lived more upright. I chose you because I set my favor upon you by my own sovereign mercy. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, Micah 6.3. I redeemed you from the land of slavery that you might know the righteousness of the Lord. Righteousness is a sovereign bestowal. God's saving acts. God, of course, providing the atonement for that. God doesn't simply look the other way for the Israelites' sin. Rather, righteousness is God's bestowal of His method and manner and how he will atone for their sins and give them favor. And God demands a response for that. Micah 6.8, that famous verse that's right afterwards. And what does the Lord require of you? He has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. See, our response to God's righteousness is to acknowledge his saving acts and to respond with loyalty to the one who is the giver of righteousness. This man with this prayer, if you could call it such a thing, utterly reputes the saving acts of God. He's not necessary. He's not needed. He's superfluous. Now what does that have to do with us? I mean, we didn't need to be saved from the Egyptians. The law clearly shows us that the one that we need to be saved from is ourselves. See, God has made you and I for perfection. When God created us, He built into us the law of loving God. You are to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
You are to love your neighbor as yourself. He built it into us and he holds us to that standard. There is a judgment that is to take place. My life counts because I'm accountable for it. But the reality is who of us has lived up to this? Who of us has really loved God with all of our hearts? Who of us has loved our neighbor as ourself? Some people come to me and they say, I don't like Christianity. Christianity is a crutch. My response to them is, well, the reason that I need the crutch is because I'm a cripple. The crutch is for cripples. The problem with the Pharisee is he says, I need no crutch. I need no favor. I need no salvation. I can accomplish that all on my own. Reminds me of one of my movie, favorite movie scenes. Remember that scene in Indiana Jones? It's the beginning of the whole thing where Jones, he walks into that. He's trying to get the little gold idol, Muhaji. We had a great little Lego set when we were kids with a little Muhaji, by the way. Fun times to be had by all. You don't care. Let's keep going. Okay, so, you know, but you need props. And so I brought, you know, Jones comes in. He's got his hat, okay? And there's the statue right there. And so what he does is he's got this bag, okay? And his job, he dumps out some sand. His job is to take the gold and he's going to switch it in such a way that one is equal to the other, right? And so he goes ahead and he does this deal here. Everything looks okay for a while. And then he starts walking backwards and all bedlam ensues. I thought of that illustration and I thought to myself, I think that's what this Pharisee is kind of trying to do. I think it's often what we try to do, right? I've got my bag, the requirement that I know is in my heart, the perfection of God, what he calls for me to do and be. I somehow need to meet the standard, right? I mean, even the Pharisee knows that there's a standard. And so he takes his bag and he starts filling it with things to see if it'll work. But what Jesus is teaching us is there is no treasure. There is no action. There is nothing that you can do that will fill that bag enough to replace the righteous requirements of God. It has to be only the saving, sovereign mercy of God that He bestows upon us. The weight is too heavy. The Pharisee is playing this shell game with God and he's not impressed. So are we doing it too? I mean, we're all at a worship service, right? We're not sacrificing a lamb. We might roast the pastor after we leave. But we've come to pray and worship. There's a reason that there's a cross in front of me. We've come to acknowledge the saving, sovereign acts of God that He bestows upon us, not because of our actions, but because of His. But what is the prayer that you are privately praying before God? Or better yet, what's in your bag? What's in your wallet? You know? I've got my little trinkets here, right? Like uh, Ken was doing such a great job, you know? Well, I come to church. I guess I could put that in there. You know, I do the right thing. I don't 
you know, cause trouble. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't whatever you want to put into your thing. I pray, I tithe even. A tenth, a full tenth. We fill it up. We live the religious game and we try to play. And do we come here for accolades? Or rather, do we come to acknowledge the sovereign, saving grace of God? The Pharisee wasn't seeking God at that service. And he for sure didn't find him. He went home with the bag full of nothing, an uneasy heart as he continued to play his little games. But what about the sinner? Verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Notice where does he stand? Not by himself, but far off. He should be standing with the other tax collectors, right? There's no group of tax collectors. And if there were, he wouldn't even stand there. It's the exact opposite. He stood far off because he didn't deserve to come close to the holy. He beat his breast. It's interesting, in the Middle East, uh, most, the characteristic of men, most of them, they, they don't beat their breasts. It's more what women do. In fact, there's only one place in the Bible where men uh, beat their breasts, and it's at uh, the crucifixion of Christ. That as they looked upon this, both the men and the women, they were so struck with sadness of what had occurred that they beat their breasts and walked away. This man is beating his heart, and he doesn't even look up because he knows maybe that psalm that's been uttered. Even sinners were raised on the psalms. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may go up and stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. There's such a difference in the prayers between this sinner, this tax collector, and this sinner, this Pharisee. The Pharisee talks as if there were no righteous person on earth as noble as he. While the tax collector prays as if there was no sinner on earth as evil as he. One claims superior status for himself by comparing himself and separating himself from everyone else. But this man acknowledges his position not related to others, but to God, who can take refuge only in God's benevolence. Why is this man here, this tax collector? Something has moved in his heart. Not a false repentance, not a check the box like this Pharisee. No, he's realized that he's a sinner in need of a Savior, that he needs to respond. He hasn't come to be received by the people who I'm sure are muttering and uttering prayers like this Pharisee. He's not coming for the people. He's coming for forgiveness. And so his prayer is very simple, isn't it? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Greek is a little tricky sometimes in that it doesn't translate exactly into English. 
See this word mercy, aleo is the Greek. We get the term kyrieleison, right? Christ have mercy. It's used, in fact, in just a little a bit. But that's not the word that he uses, aleo. Have mercy. It's actually a verb called, it's called halaskamai. And the true, the literal interpretation would be make an atonement. God, make an atonement for me. You see, this man is staring up at the altar and seeing this lamb that is being burned and sacrificed and the blood being placed on the altar as atonement for the sins of the people. And he can't help but cry out to God, God, is there an atonement for me? Let this atonement be for me, not just for them, but for me as well. In other words, can you even forgive such a person as me? And it's here where we know the beauty of God's response. Remember the Son of God who came into the world and John the Baptist laid his eyes on him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. For Christ came into the world to save sinners. God has graciously responded to this tax collector and to everyone else who's ever gone before the altar and beat their chest and said, God, is there an atonement even for me? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And so who does God make an atonement for? The one who has it all together? The one who tithes on everything? The one who fasts twice a week? No. The broken. The needy. The desperate. And the wanting. The one who comes with nothing in his bag. Lord, I need you. I don't have anything else. Will you make an atonement for me? Will you fill my bag? Will you love me? And so I don't know how you come to the cross today, but there's only one way we can come, isn't there? With an empty bag and an expectant, hoping heart, needing the grace of the Savior. God, will you make an atonement for me? Oh yes, child, I will. The best of the best shall be for you, my very son. Verse 14, the story finishes. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The first man received nothing, because he asked for nothing. The second man asked for mercy, and he received it. Notice the Pharisee didn't even really keep his title, did he? This man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. Sin, my friends, is not a broken law, but a broken relationship. 
God's greatest, deepest desire is to bestow His sovereign, gracious, saving act of mercy upon you and for you to respond in love and grace and thanksgiving as you go home with a heart full of peace and thanksgiving to God. This can't help but translate in the way we love one another. A heart that's been rescued from darkness can't help but have love for others. As more and more we're filled with God's grace, more and more realizing His gift, it has to translate in the way we love our neighbor, our friend, our enemy. Acting right doesn't make you righteous. Trusting in Christ who bestows His righteousness, that is true grace. I'm not sure why you came today. I'm not sure what's in your bag. But the beauty of this is that you can enter a Pharisee and leave a forgiven tax collector. What it takes is emptying your bag, opening your heart to God, and saying, God, is there an atonement for me? And of course we know the answer, don't we? Yes, child, there is. Yet to all who believed him, to those who received his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Not because of their efforts or their righteousness, but because of his. Don't leave here with a bag full of anything else but God's grace. It's the gift that God offers today and for all who would call upon his name. Let's pray. Lord, we acknowledge that everything that is in our bag is a joke. Lord, that we have not lived and loved in a way that honors you, in the way that we were made. And there is nothing that we can bring to you that could ever atone for that. But you have made an atonement for us, the most beautiful sacrifice, your very Son, who can wipe even the darkest spot away and make even the dirtiest heart clean. May our atonement be in nothing else than the blood of Jesus Christ. And may our hearts go home full of grace. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.